Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and on this episode, we are featuring Scott Chasky, the author of Soil and Spirit. Scott is a farmer, poet, and educator who has been shaped by a daily attention to the earth. Scott was also a leading member of the CSA movement, Community Supported Agriculture, which combines a long-standing commitment to food and organic farming. He is the author of two previous books, This Common Ground and Seed Time, as well as two collections of poetry. In his new book, Soil and Spirit, Cultivation and Kinship in the Web of Life, Scott shares a collection of essays that take us from a homestead in Maine to a farm on Long Island. Scott joins me to talk about his wonderful journey from Cornwall to Quail Hill. Scott, welcome to Nature Revisited. It's a pleasure having you on the podcast. Let's start at the beginning. Where are you originally from, and how much did nature affect your younger world? Well, I grew up in the suburbs of Buffalo in a place called Tonawanda, so western upstate New York. Moved around quite a bit. My father had a tendency to take a new job and move us. I was actually born in Toledo, Ohio, spent a little time there, but then we moved to Seattle, Washington, actually, for a short period when I was in high school, and then moved back after only a year and a half to Ithaca, New York, which really became my hometown. Wonderful place, Ithaca. So I grew up in the suburbs, as is the case for a number of people involved with the kind of agriculture that I've been been practicing for years, but I did not grow up on a farm. The nature that I encountered and that I remember was not in those suburbs of Tonawanda, New York, but when we would go upstate near to Plattsburgh, where my grandparents lived, my grandparents had grown up on farms, like a lot of people's grandparents, and there I was immersed in it. That would be what I would remember as my first experiences of being immersed in nature was there in the little village around Plattsburgh, New York, upstate New York. So which came first for you, the farmer or the poet? The poet came first. (laughs) I've been writing poetry for really all my life, and I had never given a thought to to farming until in my 20s, where my first experience of really working in the, with the earth and in the garden would have been in Maine when I moved in with a couple friends who I'd met in Maine. We both were working in an inn, and they bought a house uh, along the Saco River and put in a big garden, and that was probably my introduction to gardening. And then, of course, it took off when I went to England, which was a couple of years later. But that's, that's the beginning. When did you first start looking to the soil and to want to grow things? Well, so that was in Maine, 
I would have been in my mid-20s living in a very remote property along the Saco River. I did then, a couple years later, enter an MFA program, a Master's of Fine Arts program, through Antioch College. I was attracted to it because the actual study was in England. Antioch had a place called the Center for British Studies located in London. I wound up living in Oxford. And when I was in Oxford, I got a job as a gardener to uh, pay my my rent for my bed sit, eight pounds a eight pounds a month, I think it was, and I worked for a pound an hour. And and once I started working in the garden, in a place called Boar's Hill, overlooking Oxford, I was captured. <laughs> so what led you and your wife to move to England, and in particular Cornwall? I mentioned that first I lived in Oxford for a couple of years when I was pursuing this degree. So I would go into London maybe three days a week, and the rest of the time I lived in Oxford. And I met my wife. I was there for a master's degree in writing, and she was there as a junior year abroad. And we happened to meet there. It was really the love of literature and of writing that brought both of us there. But that's also where I learned to garden. So that's carried on for the, the rest of my life, basically. And talk about your time in Cornwall. After we met, we came back to this country for a period and missed England. Uh, We wanted to go back, and we were, you know, at that age when we could find jobs here and there and travel. When we went back to England, my wife had written a, a poem to a woman named Dorothy Iglesias, who wrote a book called The Cry of a Bird. And my wife read this found it in her school library when she was 12 years old, wrote a poem to Dorothy. Dorothy wrote back because she loved the letter from Megan and the poem. And that led to a long correspondence between the two of them. When we went back to England, Dorothy and her sister Pog, who they called the bird ladies who lived on the cliffside in Cornwall, had passed away. And we were basically led down to, uh, to take care of the cottage and the studio where the two bird ladies lived without any idea what that would lead to. We stayed there for eight years, a roundabout way to get to Cornwall, but we found an amazing life there. And is that where you first learned to be a farmer? And what is cliff gardening? We lived in a, a village called Mausel. It's spelled Mousehole. We lived in Love Lane Cottage, Mousehole, quite a, quite a wonderful address. And there are these meadows. They're called cliff meadows because, obviously, it's, it's sloping ground leading down to the bay. So we're right on the water, basically, looking out at, at Mounts Bay, as it's called, in the English Channel in the distance. So Cornwall is the southwest tip of England, very close to the, the southwest tip, which is called Land's End. And, and I learned early on when we were there that these cliff meadows in Mausel, because they faced southerly and east and the milder bay instead of being on the Atlantic side, was called the first ground in Britain. And when I heard that, I thought, whatever that is, I want to be involved in it. I found a mentor, great chap named Edgar Wallace, who was in his late 70s, and and he taught me the rigors of cliff gardening there. So um, quite a life. So from there... You then ended up in New York on Long Island. For those who may not know, 
what is a CSA? And when was the idea of a CSA first presented to you? Yeah, this is another great story. As you will hear from my stories, there's there's an organic process going on uh, that led to organic farm, farming. When we came back from England, my father-in-law, who was a great sculptor named William King, invited me to a meeting of this new thing that they were involved with called Community Sport Agriculture. So that's the first I heard of it, and that would have been in 1989. And um, so the CSA here, the Community Sport Agriculture Farm here, that they were a part of um, started in 1988, and really no one had heard of it at this time. The first, first two in this country were 1986. So this was really early on, and they just happened to be members of this of the, the CSA, one of the first in New York State, in the country even. You know, I was missing my gardening that I practiced in England. I sort of dove in. I said, wow, I want to be involved in this project. And that led me to actually being very involved in the project and eventually becoming the farmer. So your farm, Quail Hill Farm, as you mentioned, was one of the first CSAs in the country. And it has an interesting relationship with the Peconic Land Trust. How did Quail Hill get started? A fellow named Bob Willett, who was the gardener for the CSA, and they had to keep moving because once the landowners, they were on leased land, and once the landowners got the idea that this involved people um, coming out to harvest and food on their land, decided, well, maybe they didn't quite want that. So the last move and where Coil Hill still exists in Amagansett, where the land trust, the Peconic Land Trust, had just inherited some land and then was, you know, responsible for the stewardship of that land and presented with this idea of something new called CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. John Halsey, the the head of the land trust said, well, let's try that. So that was in 1990, so that was the first year. Quail Hill Farm is now in its 34th year. And for many years, we were the only project like this in the entire country, a marriage of a conservation organization and a CSA farm. And I, I, know, that, I know we're the only ones because people were calling me constantly, asking questions about, how do you do this? What's this like? What does this mean for the land trust? And what does it mean for the farm? That was the beginning, 1990. So how was Quail Hill, and maybe still is, different from other CSAs? When the farm started, actually had a different name for the first couple of years, the impetus was that these 10 families wanted to really be actively involved and harvest their own food. So the farmer at the time did most of the planting and some of the cultivating, but the members of the farm did a lot of the work and harvested all their own food. Most CSAs don't work that way, although although many CSAs have a volunteer requirement or, or welcome people to volunteer. But from that first year, the unusual thing about our CSA is that the members are required to harvest their own food. So that means six to 700 people come out in the field two days a week. Now it's actually three days a week at different times and march out and dig their own potatoes and 
cut their own lettuce and pick their own peas and pick flowers and all that sort of thing. So it's incredibly active engagement on the members' part, and, and that's, that's still quite unusual. So what is your favorite crop? I'm glad you asked. And why? <laughs> well, it's garlic, and probably not every farmer would, would answer that, although once once you start talking to garlic fanatics, you'll find that there are quite a few of them out there. But I love the crop, well, first of all, because it's delicious, and we use it every day in whatever we're cooking. But the other factor about it is that many farms like us are growing annual crops, and you don't get so much of a chance to develop a relationship with that plant. Garlic is different because garlic is in the ground for about eight months. It's planted in the late autumn around Halloween and harvested very soon. I'm, I'm checking my garlic daily now to see when it's ready. So the first week in July. So that's a very long time to get to get to know the plant and I have great respect for it. And it's been cultivated for something like 6,000 years. I have respect for that too. So. I hope there are other garlic lovers listening. I'm sure there are. I know a lot myself. Well, you became one of the major leaders in the CSA movement. What were some of the biggest obstacles it had to overcome? And what are some of the highlights of its journey? Well, some of the highlights were really right there in the beginning when, you know, we first met just a group of like 25 people or something that coalesced around this idea, but there were people from all over the country that came to meet in a little tiny Waldorf school in Kimberton, Pennsylvania. And those first meetings were really, really a treasure. Within a couple of years, that group of 25 people grew to 50 to 150 to 300. And there were these early meetings, a woman named Kathy Lawrence from Just Food helped to create these series of conferences early on. And I think the impetus of those, that those are, that's one of the highlights for me early on, the, the sort of intensity that gathered around this idea and then with people learning that they could actually make a living at such a thing and, and the sense of community that came out of that. At one of those meetings early on, when, this is what I'm thinking about as probably one of the most significant challenges and still is the most significant challenge in my mind. There was a, a great speaker uh, named Marty Strange who had been involved in agricultural policy for many, many years, policy and politics. And I have the echo of what he said to all these really idealistic CSA farmers. He said the the impetus of the market economy will be to drive CSA towards the market. And by that, he meant away from the ideals that were involved with creating community and fairness and taking care of land in the best way possible. And that challenge is still there, that the drive, the impulse of the market would be to drive the community supported agriculture and the consumers who part of it towards that market economy and away from the ideal of CSA. So how do you see CSAs positioned now and how do you see their future? Well, I guess when you mentioned some of the highlights, I didn't, I didn't get there yet. And I do write about uh, one of these journeys to a conference in China 
none of us in the, that you know in the, those early days and in that little Waldorf school in Kimberton, Pennsylvania, imagined that there would be global conferences of of people practicing community sport agriculture all over the world, and so that's an incredible highlight. It said there were up to, I don't know, 8,000 or more CSAs in this country alone. But, you know, at those international conferences, there were people from 40 different countries really practicing the same kind of agriculture and coming together to share in the community aspect, which is really at, at the heart of it. That kind of positioning is a great thing. Lots of challenges still involved. But the journey from a few people isolated practicing this thing called CSA here and there to having an international effect is is a, a long journey and a good one. So in your book, This Common Ground, you say, quote, diversity, I know, has become a catchword, but a word we must repeat, I believe, like a chant. Talk about how the small farmer, the CSAs, are the best way to preserve the diversity of the food we grow and eat? And what are we losing when we lose the diversity of food? Well, we're losing a lot. We've already lost a lot. I don't know. There's just nothing more important. The word biodiversity is used over and over again, and there's just nothing more important, especially in this time where we have to deal with climate change. You think about nourishing a diversity is that it also creates a, a resilience, whether that's a resilience in a soil or a resilience in a community or in a way of practice farming, just nothing more important than that. Uniformity, the opposite, you know, the monoculture has been the kind of agriculture, the industrial agriculture, does the exact opposite. It leads to multiple problems that no one foresaw in the beginning, but those are well documented now. When you're thinking about what kind of crops that we need to develop resilience in this period of climate change, the greater the diversity of individual species, the greater possibility to adapt to the changing environment. So uh, it's just essential. It always has been, but more so now. And in your second book, Seed Time, about the history, politics, and the promise of seeds, you say it's hard to think of a subject more fundamental to the sustenance of the human race than seeds. It seems in our culture, we have all but forgotten the seed. Just how important is it that we reconnect with seeds and their spiritual as well as practical purposes? I've been writing about this for some time now, and what led me to writing that book, Seed Time, was that First of all, my joy and amazement at uh, planting seeds and having them come up year after year and producing the food that could nourish us. So it was just that. But more than that, the questions people would ask me about where our seeds come from were so basic. And I thought if people, if these committed agriculturists interest with people with interest in agriculture knew basically very little about seeds. What about the rest of the 
general public. And I thought, well, it's time to write a book trying to cover the subject. And such a that once I started writing, I thought, this is such a vast subject. What, what am I doing? At the exact same time that I was writing about seeds, many other people were too. So there are a number of of books. I encourage people to make those books part of their library. And I thought, though, that's a sign of how vital this topic is because there are many people addressing it right now for a very good reason, because every single seed has a story, and that story is a living story. Each seed is alive. That should be enough of a realization for all of us to know whatever's in that, in that little package. We should know more about it so that we can take care of it, preserve it, create more diversity from it, etc. Are seeds sacred? Yes. <laughs> I, have a, I have a simple answer to that, because is life sacred? Mm -hmm. If you believe so, as I do, then the seed is one of the basic components of life. It's um, nature's gift to us. And in my feeling and thought, that is sacred. So we've talked a lot about the soil. Let's talk about the spirit. How would you describe your new book, Soil and Spirit, and what inspired you to write it? I suppose I've been writing about soil and spirit from even before I was, uh, was a farmer. I was led to write it because I'd written about the details of community agriculture and, and about our particular farm in prose, but I hadn't addressed the spirit under it and behind it and a part of it as directly as I wanted to. And for me, the expression of spirit is something that one imbibes through poetry. So these were the two motivating influences and practices in my life were, were actually working with the soil, but also being in love with poetry. Somehow I wanted to find, I hoped through the process of writing, without saying this is this or that is that, that the impetus of, of those two one tangible and one intangible would somehow fuse in the writing. So that's what led to it. And how much distance is there from soil to spirit? <laughs> no distance. How's that? Yeah, that's what I truly feel. No, no, no distance at all. And when did you first experience the spiritual connection to the soil? I think it would probably it probably was when I first started working with the soil in Maine, but I don't think until I really got deeply into the gardening in in England. You know, it's a country of gardeners. Oh, I can remember you know double digging with a spade on the hillside in Boar's Hill above Oxford. I just was hooked at that point, and and more so of course when we moved to Cornwall, and then I was working daily in my in my cliff meadows. Just as there's no distance or separation between soil and spirit in my mind and thinking, when you're working with it and on a, a daily basis, and you're you know sifting it through your hands and being 
uh, thrown off the end of your shovel or even, you know, as you're driving a tractor and the tiller is, is turning over the soil, you get off the tractor and you get down and step onto it. And the experience is, well, kind of indescribable, but I guess I'm not supposed to say that because I'm a poet writing about it, right? <laughs> so I'm supposed to be um, evoking it and, and invoking it and evoking it in, in whatever way I can. So in your book, Soil and Spirit, there's an essay entitled The Season of Grain Rain, where you visit China, as you mentioned earlier, to attend an international conference on CSAs. What are some of the cultural differences between the U.S. and China when it comes to agriculture, such as the use of the word peasant? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad you picked up on that. I sort of hesitated to talk about the word peasant, but it was very much a part of the discussion at that at that conference. Specifically, I was part of a group of people who were writing some words about what we had accomplished at the conference. And the question came up, do we use the word peasant or farmer? And there were people there from all over the world, so there were a number of opinions. One way I wrote about it in the book was that I quoted the definitions that I had at my fingertips, which was my Oxford English Dictionary and then my American Dictionary. And those definitions were entirely different, opposed to one another. The main reason I brought it up was because it should be a word that honors the work of humans uh, on the earth as caretakers. And originally, I think that's what it was. So a great difference between our culture and the Chinese culture, for instance, was how that word was used. And one of the speeches by a Chinese academic, he mentioned that Chinese peasants have changed the course of Chinese history. And so he was using it as an honorable title, not as a derogatory one at all. And in, in France, for instance, the acronym for CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, is AMAP, uh, which is A-M-A-P, and that translates into the Association for the Maintenance of Peasant Agriculture. So to me, that's a fascinating topic. I just wanted to get it in there so that people would think about what that really means, what it means to respect labor or to mock it, as often can be the case. So what often comes up in my conversations on Nature Revisited is the importance of story. So as a poet and a farmer, can you give us your ideas of just how important story is to our relationship with nature. Somehow I can picture this of people sitting around in a circle around a fire, our ancestors, how long ago, telling stories to one another. That has always been with us as humans, what stories are. And then writing about seeds the, the entire time, um, I was aware that every seed holds a story. So every movement that we make and every changing situation that we encounter in our lives, how do we communicate that to other people? We communicate it through story. 
It was really in this book, the subtitle is called Cultivation and Kinship in the Web of Life. I wanted to do that through telling stories, and, and that was, again, one of, the, one of the things behind this particular book. Before we leave, I would like to ask, how has your wife, Megan, influenced you on your amazing journey from Cornwall to Quail Hill? a wonderful question. That is a wonderful question. The influence is, is everywhere. We've now been together for, I think it's 44 years. And it's interesting to think of starting in Cornwall because that part of the journey had everything to do with this small miracle of her writing a letter to one of the bird ladies, Dorothy Iglesias, and that led us there. We met in England as poets, and we have been traveling together and writing poetry together, and we've given so many readings together over the years. That's very much a part of our relationship. We were were married there in Cornwall. We uh, had our first child in Cornwall. We had our first home together there. And when we came back to this country, it was hard to know where to settle, but we'd actually moved my wife's mother-in-law here before we took off for Cornwall. And we said, well, it's a good place to settle down for a bit. That led us to settling here, and that led me to being part of the CSA and and to us raising three children here, ultimately. You know, we've done that all together. It's been a, a wonderful journey. We've traveled together. How do you see the future of Quail Hill Farm? Technically, I graduated, is, is Megan's word for it, about three years ago. And uh, I have this garden, which I tend, growing these Chinese medicinal herbs. I actually write about that in Soil and Spirit, so that's part of a, a chapter there. I uh, have lots of conversations with Leighton, who took over for me at the farm, and the new crop of apprentices that come every year. And they're just carrying on what we started years before and expanding it a bit. The connection between conservation, preserving land, and with taking care of the land. And so it's like a, you know, a new crew that comes in and carries on the work. I just see it continuing on. And of course, very important to the work that we did there was educating younger people. And now Quail Hill Farm is actually surrounded by a number of people who were apprentices at Quail Hill, my apprentices, and they're carrying on the legacy as well. I think it's like a, a wheel with the spokes that keep radiating out. That's how I see it. So, Scott... I have truly enjoyed this conversation. So what do you say we finish with the poem from Soil and Spirit called A Breath? Yeah, well, thank you. A Breath. Meadow man, house scholar, from field to chair, I hear the deep choir of the anvil, iron and rust, irony, dust. Then Nordic beat breaks to summer. Willows wave, elderberry beads gift the cloud. Dog rose shades the shore. In a measure of rage, I know the weightlessness of innocence. At dawn, silken nursery tents spin the field to song. Sea air, violet betony stairs shake 
the man to make of breath a mortal joy. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Scott Chasky and that you get a chance to read his new book, Soil and Spirit, and that you also visit his website, scottchasky.com, to learn more. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with family, friends, and colleagues. You can follow Nature Revisited on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and our website, NordenProductions.com. The music for Nature Revisited is Buzz and Fly by Tim Buckley. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, Remember, we are nature.